Our first reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 8, verses 16 through 26. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. This is the Gospel according to John, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. As Jesus passed by, he saw a blind, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world, mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Thank you. We don't have bats in our belfry, but we have birds in our... Um, thank you. So um, it's, it's actually kind of nice. Um, they're up above the stage. It's, yeah, it sounds like some small ones. Anyway, I think that's fun. Uh, as Grendel said, uh, in some cultures it would be a sign. Um, it would be a sign here, but I don't know of what, so <laughs> I'll let it go. Well, actually, um, in Psalm 84, it's this beautiful psalm of the journey of worship. And people are on their way to worship at the temple, and they're singing, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. And um, they sing about the pilgrim uh, arriving there and be, being refreshed, And even the sparrow has a place to build its nest, and it's by the altar of God. I've always liked that because the sparrow is like this most worthless of birds in Scripture, but there's a place for the the sparrow, and it's the altar. The altar is a place where everything is made right, uh, where we connect with God, and, and the brokenness of our life is mended and atoned. So even the birds this morning can find their way there. So we can too. Um, As we sit in silent prayer, open your heart to God and don't try to force anything. And and if you're sitting there thinking, uh, I'm not doing this right, I'm not doing this right, uh, well, you're not doing it right. (laughs) Because because you're... uh, your focus is on yourself and, and whether you're doing it right or not. And just let go of that. There's no right way. There's only however God meets with us in this moment. And, and that's all that we want. And so we, we try to keep a steady uh, uh, concentration on God's presence with us. Now, other thoughts are going to come. You're going to get distracted. That's what the brain does. It stays really busy all the time, and, and it thinks it finds emergencies. Oh, 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 don't forget to pay the gas bill when you get home. And it's just not really that important. And if you let it go, it, 
if you can just take a step, but don't try to force a feeling or an experience. But do this. Relax and let God's spirit come to you. And he will. Just let him come to you and be in your heart, be in your body, be in your breath. And in this way, we can know that we've opened our our door and surrendered and invited him in. So slowly draw in a deep breath, slowly relax. May God himself bless this moment for you. I want to quickly review uh, statements that Jesus has made that are uh, pertinent to what we've been looking at in John and to this morning. Um, To the thirsty, he offered living water. First, it was the Samaritan woman, and then in chapter 7, it was in the temple. If anyone thirsts, come to me. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. It's interesting, isn't it, that he, pardon me, he promises um, the Samaritan woman that she can drink, that she can take the water in. But in the temple, he talks about the water flowing out. Um, So there is this rhythm, like our breath of, receiving and then it just pouring out of our lives and when it's the holy spirit you know it's it's usually spontaneous Uh, you haven't prepared your speech for this moment you're just there and when you find yourself talking fluently and making sense and and representing jesus well you know i know it's not me it's the spirit um and then jesus said to the hungry, I am the bread of life. And then last week, he said, I am the light of the world. And again, this week, he says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And whoever comes to me, whoever follows me, will have the light of life. So we've got the living water and the living bread and the living light. These same themes appear in Psalm 36, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of humankind take refuge on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. That last line especially. This is mystical verse here, mystical poetry. And in your light we see light. Um, last week we learned about this light that's invisible to human eyes, uh, the light that Jesus is to the world. It shines in darkness and it shines in light. God lights things up for us. Um, If you like uh, the CSI programs, you like to watch ID Discovery and all the murder mysteries, a lot of times... Forensic light is used in order to see things not visible to the eye. Uh, It may be, when looking for blood, uh, uh, used with the application of luminol, and then that that blue light causes the the luminol to shine brightly. So even in in scenes where someone has tried to clean up the blood uh, with bleach or whatever, Uh, what it looks like a lot of times is that they've just smeared it around. But you can't see it just walking into the room. But apply the luminol and turn on the light. Sometimes fingerprints are founded this way and other traces of of, uh, perhaps a hair or something shines up under forensic light. Well, God's light enables us to see the invisible. And so John in his gospel is shining this light on the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are all pretty much the same, but John's very different because he sees more in those Gospels than 
than the writers saw, or at least that the disciples saw during that period. And because the synoptic gospels stay within that, that time period, there's a lot of things that aren't explained. They're just there, and the disciples aren't understanding, and Jesus says, well, you don't get it. And they don't, but it just goes on. And John shines light on that, and he says, here's what they didn't get. So, like we've said, it's, it's, John writes like a spiritual commentary on the, the Gospels <clears throat> so that we can see things that were still hidden from the disciples. But, you know, even with this light now that we, that we talked about last week, there's still a problem, and that is we can be blind. So the light might be here, and, God, and Jesus might be saying, I'm the light of the world, and I'm shining light all around you right now. But because we're blind, it doesn't do us any good. We're, we're not seeing, we're not learning, we're not understanding. Uh, we just stay stuck in our, our ignorance. So John wants us to see the light. And in, in last week's chapter, in this chapter, chapter uh, 9 this morning, uh, he shows us what he's doing. He shows us the light. He says, here's, what, here's how I'm finding all these hidden mysteries in the Gospels. It's through this light of Jesus, this, this light of the Spirit of God that illuminates them. So chapter 9 begins with a blind man. I want to think that chapter 9 begins with me, that the light is all around me, but I'm not seeing it or enjoying it. Jesus heals this blind man, and because it's a Sabbath, it creates complications. First, there's a stir in the crowd uh, when they see the blind guy walking around sighted. Uh, And then he gets interrogated by a council of Pharisees. They want to know, who who dared to heal you on the Sabbath day? Uh, This was a congenital blindness. I think it's the only case of congenital blindness that Jesus healed that we read about in the Gospels. And so, I mean, he's never seen before, and his eyes are are open, and he's walking around, and they want to know who who healed him because of Jesus' uh, method of healing him. You know, on the Sabbath day, it was okay to save a life, but it wasn't okay to do anything medicinal to promote healing. And uh, specifically, Jesus making this, this mud paste to anoint the guy's eyes, this was verboten. That's the wrong word for Jerusalem, but anyway, it's not allowed. Um, okay, so, so next, his parents are brought in and interrogated. Uh, is this your son? Yes, he's our son. Um, was he blind? Yes, he was blind. Can you see now? Yes. How? We don't know. Um, you know, ask him. He's of age. He can tell you. Uh, then they interrogate the man again. They bring him back in. They say, well, we know that this man's not from God because he, he's doing this on the Sabbath day. John does not include any of the parables that the synoptic gospels have. In, in Matthew chapter 13, we have, Matthew's put all these parables together. Uh, in Luke, they're spread around a little bit more. Mark is more like Matthew. It's got most of the parables Matthew has. John doesn't have any of those parables. The sower and the seed, the, the mustard seed that grows into a tree, the leaven in the lump of uh, dough that's being made into bread. Um, But, on the other hand, John saw certain events in the life of of Jesus and in the light of Jesus, and he he saw those events as illustrations of what Jesus was teaching. So, for him, this story of the blind man becomes a real-life parable, right? So, it's, it's loaded with analogies, and Jesus will, will bring these analogies out. And for John, this is the light of the world that's shining. There are only three times in the Gospels that Jesus used spit to heal someone. Personally, I think that's a good thing, that it was no more than three times. Um, it doesn't sound hygienic to me. 
uh, and it sounds problematic. It's true that in that time, sometimes saliva was used medicinally. Um, we have a dog who still thinks it's going to help in, uh, if she licks her, her wounds. But um, two of those times were in the Gospel of Mark, and the, the third time is here in John's Gospel. Only three times, twice in Mark. Not at all in Matthew or Luke. No spit in those books, uh, at least not to heal. But here, as well as Mark. In Mark chapter 7, verse 33, it is a man who is deaf and mute. Then in, in the next chapter, chapter 8, it's a man who is blind. And in both instances, Jesus used spit, and he applied saliva in order to heal the, the deaf, mute, and the blind. But spitting was not the only similarity unique to these two stories. Uh, Jesus does things he doesn't usually do when he heals. For example, uh, he takes the deaf mute aside from the crowd. He's not going to do this publicly. He's going to do it. He's going to heal him privately. He takes the blind man by the hand. The difference being he's blind. And so Jesus guides him out of the village. So you know, it's really away from the crowds uh, to heal him. Uh, another uh, unique thing is he, he touches them where the ailment is. He, he touches the man's tongue, the mute's tongue, and also puts his fingers, finger in, in, their, in his ears. He touches the eyes of the blind man. We don't see this kind of detail in Jesus' touch usually. He'll lay hands on people. He'll take someone by the hand. But here he's touching the point of the affliction. This is unique. And then um, when the deaf mute is healed, we're told he spoke plainly. And when the blind man, when the blind man's healing is complete, he spoke or he saw clearly. So spoke plainly, saw clearly. These two stories frame something that Jesus had to say to the disciples. That's what Rich read this morning. The deaf man came before Jesus said what he had to say, and the blind man comes after. And in between, Jesus says to his disciples, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Mark has put this all together so well that we have a literally deaf man and a literally blind man framing Jesus saying to his disciples, what, are you still blind and deaf? I just, I just love this. It's so intense. Um, literal blindness and deafness then become metaphorical or spiritual blindness and deafness. This is the light that shines on the deaf man and the blind man. When we come to John chapter 9, this only other place where Jesus used saliva to heal, uh, and he applies it directly to the man's eyes, the word is anoint, which is interesting because in healing, you would anoint people with oil. And um, then there's a spiritual anointing. In the book of Acts, uh, a couple of times it says that Jesus was anointed with the Spirit of God. And Jesus anoints this man with, with the mud paste that he's made, applying it directly to his eyes. And when we, we put all these stories together, it would be difficult to not see a connection between Mark's two stories and John's story. I think that John has Mark's gospel in front of him, or at least he's very familiar with it. He knows about these stories, and he is playing on a theme that Mark has already developed. In Mark, it's very subtle. In John, it's not so subtle. Um, there's a connection then between what John is saying and what they've said, only it's, it's not a historical 
connection, the type of connection we would make. We'd say, well, who were the persons? Where did this happen? What was the timing? You know, are these things identical? No, they're not. Um, the, the connection is the use of metaphor, the use of analogy, uh, the spiritualizing. The, it's the implied meaning of the disability that we can be blind, that, that God can be doing something right in front of us and we don't see it, or he could be speaking to us and we don't hear it. And the fact is, Jesus heals it. See, John is saying, well, okay, you're not seeing the light, but, but listen to this story. Jesus comes across you and you're there and you're blind, and he does something about that. He, he can do something about that. If only it, it were that easily, actually. By the way, when Jesus heals the blind man in Mark's gospel, it's the only healing I know of where he healed in stages. He first touches him, and he says, uh, he asks him, how do you see? Do you remember Jesus at any other time after healing someone saying, well, how do you feel now? Do you, are you getting better? Uh, what's your progress? Why does he do that here? Uh, how do you see? He goes, well, I see it looks like, you know, people look like they're trees walking around. Um, and so Jesus touches him again, and then he sees everything clearly. All right, so we see this blind man here in chapter 9. He sees for the first time. What about his spiritual sight? Well, someone comes to him and says, who healed you? And the first thing he says is, the man they call Jesus. He's a man. Later, when he's being interrogated, there are all these questions about, is this guy for real? Is he good? Is he bad? And they ask the blind guy, well, what do you say about him? And he says, he's a prophet. He's a prophet from God. Okay, so he's grown some from a man to a prophet from God. Later on, they say, well, we know he can't be from God. And the blind man says, well, no, that's interesting. Um, We've never heard of a a healing like this, and yet he's done it. We know God doesn't hear sinners. In in other words, he must be from God. Okay, so he's still growing. And then Jesus meets up with him later and asks him. Now, again, he hasn't seen Jesus yet, right? Because when Jesus anointed him, he said, go wash the mud off in the pool of Siloam. And uh, so now he hears Jesus' voice. Would he recognize it? having heard it only once in just a few short sentences. Um, And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man says, who is he that, you know, I can believe in him? And he said, he's the one who's talking to you now. And he said, yes, I believe. And and he worshipped him. So um, we see him being healed in stages. That is, he's receiving sight in stages until he comes to this very clear sight I see you now as the Son of Man, and, and, and all the implications of, of that title. There, there's this big ruckus that goes on in this chapter, and it all begins with a question. Jesus saw the, the blind man. I, I see Jesus and his disciples walking into the temple, and Jesus sees the blind man, and I, I think he just stops and he's looking at him, and the disciples follow his gaze, and in, in my version, uh, they're feeling uncomfortable because Jesus isn't doing anything. He's just looking at them and, and they're looking at the guy and thinking, well, we should do something. But they know their own uh, Im- impotence when it comes to healing. They can't do anything for him. Uh, they don't have any cash in their pockets. They, um, they don't have any special powers that they can just touch him and heal him. And so since they cannot fix him, they do what they can do. They theorize about his blindness. They speculate, Lord, who sinned that this man would be born blind? Was it his parents or was it him? Now we can see how that would be problematic because if it was his parents sinned and their punishment was 
the man's born blind, well, how unfair to punish him for their sins. How are we going to work that one out? Uh, in fact, God said in Jeremiah, I'm not going to, uh, and Ezekiel, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to punish the children for the parents' sin. Everyone's going to answer for themselves. If it's the man's sin, well, he was born blind. So did he sin in utero? <laughs> I think there are some moms who think their babies are capable of doing that. <laughs> you know, oh, that little sinner, he's kicking again. Um, or was it retroactive? God says, well, I know that, that baby. When he grows up, he's going to sin. So I'm just going to let him be born blind from the start. This is what the disciples are doing. They're speculating. And they're asking Jesus, who sinned that he was born blind? They're, they're blind themselves, aren't they? They're shooting in the dark. They have no idea what's going on here. Um, but the question reveals their blindness, that, that they're in his condition only spiritually, uh, or at least at this moment, intellectually. And they're blind in, in their culture's belief that someone is to blame. Suffering like this, someone is to blame. They're unable to determine where to place the blame. But they're uh, applying a rule of cause and effect to sin and suffering. And that's, that's how people saw it at that time. That's definitely how the Old Testament saw it. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Cause and effect. Oh, look how blessed you are. You, you know, you must have done something to please God. Oh, look what's happened to you. Obviously, you're a very bad person. I want to pause here just for a moment. Whose voice in the Old Testament is most similar to the voice of Jesus here? Jesus says, neither him nor his parents sinned. It's not, it's not that. I mean, he, he just dismisses that. Okay, um, Jesus is so beautiful in this whole story. You guys are on the wrong track. It's not about sin. It's not about blame. Whose voice is most like his? Um, Abraham? No. Abraham followed God and he prospered. And God said, do what I tell you and I'll bless you. And he was blessed materially. And so was Isaac, and so was Jacob. So it's not their voice. Is it the voice of, of Moses? Definitely not. Um, Moses says, I'm putting before you today two choices. One is the way of life. One is the way of death. Follow God's law, you'll live. Disobey it, and you'll die. In fact, if you want to read some really... Well, yeah, I'm always looking for horrible passages in the Old Testament. Uh, but if you want to read something really frightening... Uh, read the blessings and the cursings that come close to uh, the end of both uh, uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy. The blessings are like about half a page. The curses go on for a page and a half. And uh, so, no, it's not Moses' voice that says, neither his parents nor he sinned, and that's why he suffers. Uh, Yes, you got it. I was going to say, what about the sages who wrote the book of Proverbs? No, they're the same basic philosophy, but as Stan said, Job. Job is a righteous man. Okay, don't get too heady about it, Stan. You... Oh, okay. <laughs> then Gail gets the gold star. <laughs> oh, applied with spit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we're doing the chicken and the egg here. All right. Job had lived in the blindness of his culture. He believed at one time he was blessed because he pleased God. And he did please God. He was a a person of righteousness and integrity. But just for a little bit of extra insurance, he would offer sacrifices for his children um, in order to keep them safe, just make sure. And, And it was working for him until the day that everything fell apart. 
And that was his eye-opener. It's not cause and effect. And his friends who came to comfort him said, well, obviously you've done something wrong. You've, You've sinned really badly. Let us make some suggestions what we think you've done wrong. And they just ream him. And he is like, no, 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 no. I know that's not true and that this is unjust. Now, I'm a man who's walked with God. I've been generous with the poor. He gives his whole litany. And he says, this is unjust. And they're so blind by their cultural paradigms that they cannot give in until God speaks to them and he tells them, You go to Job and ask him to pray for you. Take a sacrifice with you. Ask Job to pray for you. And then you'll be okay because you were not right. You did not speak of me properly as my servant Job did. There are whole industries and and Christian organizations today that are all about telling us how to, to be in God's favor and how to be the perfect husband and the perfect wife and the perfect parent and the perfect child and the perfect Christian and the perfect witness and blah, blah, blah. And um, you do these things and God will be pleased with you. And, um, and, and you'll prosper. You'll make it in life. And it's just not true. And, uh, you know, bad things happen to good people. And, and people who don't deserve to suffer, suffer. And people who I think should be suffering are healthy and happy every single day. It's another thing I want to talk about when I get to heaven. Is like, if anyone up there wants to talk to me about it, it's like, what gives with this anyway? Um, I was telling you, I was giving you a list of names every week. You know, destroy this person, you know, ruin this person's house, whatever, but never worked. Anyway, um, Job became a spokesperson for everyone who suffers. His cries of agony, his des- his despair, his fight—you know—it's um, it, what every person who suffers needs to hear, needs to be reminded of. And he wasn't forsaken by God, and and God appeared to him and spoke to him, and and just God speaking to him. Job said, "That's enough. That's all I needed. I thought you had forgotten about me." You know, at one point he says. God is using me for target practice. He's shooting his poison-tipped arrows at me. But God wasn't. And they were reconciled. Everything was good. For sure, sin has its consequences. And I don't want to brush that off. However, it's more like when you roll through a stop sign or run a red light and you get a ticket. You know, it's, it's really obvious. No, it, there's no guesswork there. Oh, why this? Why a ticket? You know, what have I done? I've lived a right life. I'm a good person. Well, it's, yeah, and that doesn't go away. It's just that you broke a law. See, but it's very clear like that. I know why I've got this ticket. I know why I have to appear or pay a fine or whatever. I mean, I don't really know what you have to do. I've never gotten a ticket before. <laughs> I mean, you know, not since I was like, oh, I know, a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, um, the disciples needed to be less concerned about the cause and more interested in the cure. And Jesus is focusing on them that way. But it's okay that they can't heal the guy. But they don't need to hypothesize about why he's blind they can be there for him in lots of different ways. But it's Jesus who's the light of the world. And so Jesus can, can bring light into the, the darkness and also into the darkness of the disciples' minds about things. For the rest of the chapter, it's almost like blindness is contagious. First, it's the crowd. They're not seen so well. Uh, they, they get into this um, discussion. Isn't that the blind beggar? Who, who all these years has been, you know, coming to the temple and begging. You know, he, he's, he's being led there. He comes with his cane and his sunglasses. Isn't that the blind beggar? And someone else says, no, he's like him. You know, looks like him. Not, but it can't be because he's not blind. 
Um, uh, he's dressed like him, his hair's like his, but not, not him. Um, there's a blindness there, right, in, in, in what they're doing. They, they couldn't trust their eyes. Am I seeing things? Then there's the blindness of the Pharisees. Regarding Jesus, they, they declare, this man is not from God. They're, they're certain of that. Whatever else. Okay, he performed a miracle. Whatever, whatever else, he's not from God. Everything points to a miracle and to the uniqueness of Jesus, but they persist in their blindness. Uh, throughout the interrogation, they are uh, groping for answers. And, and they're asking whoever they can talk to, who did this? How did, it, how did he do it? Um, okay, the mud, but how did that bring your sight back? I mean, uh, they're blind. They don't know. And they're blind to Jesus. They, they say, as for this man, we know that he's a sinner. We're, we're certain of that. I mean, how blind is, is that? The light of the world. We know that he's a sinner. And then the man's parents are blind too. Uh, we don't know how he got his sight. Now, they're afraid. You know, you can be innocent and go before a judge and be afraid. You know, just the whole setting. It's like, oh, I didn't do anything wrong, but, you know, all of a sudden I feel really guilty. And I better be careful what I say because I might blurt out something that I did. Okay, okay, okay. One time in Sunday school when the teacher wasn't looking, I stole a flannel graph Moses. <laughs> you know, and it just came out. And I'm, and I'm sorry, and I'll pay for it, or, you know, whatever. No, uh, oh, no, they don't even have those things anymore. Um, but they're afraid, and there's already a threat to anyone who, who um, says anything positive about Jesus. We don't know how he got his sight back. Ask him. The only one who's beginning to see the light of the world is the one who just that day began to see light. The only one who's beginning to see the light of Jesus is the man who is blind. In fact, he comes so far, there's a place where he even sounds like Jesus. He says things that Jesus has said. Um, He says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Jesus said that very thing. He said, I have come from God. I speak from God. It, apart from God, I can do nothing. Just a few weeks ago, we read that. He's talking like Jesus already. And he hasn't even seen Jesus face to face, but he's seen the light of the world. So um, after the ruckus then, um, the blind man has a second encounter with Jesus. And again, to me, this is the beauty of Jesus. He hears that he's been tossed out of the synagogue. This is permanent. I doubt that he's allowed in the temple anymore and allowed into any of the synagogues anymore. And this was the threat hanging over people, hanging over his parents. That's why they were really cool about what they said. He's tossed out and, and Jesus goes looking for him. Jesus has to go outside the temple to find this guy. He goes looking for him. Because he knows he's freshly healed, um, that he never planned on being a spokesperson for Jesus, and now he's being punished for it, and all he's doing is just telling what seems right to him and, and telling his story. And Jesus knows that he, he, he needs him. And he goes to him, and he's going to complete his enlightenment. So... Uh, being blind, he'd lived on the outskirts of society. Here he's marginalized again, spiritually. Uh, I mean, now that he has the opportunity to, to join the community with, with his sight, he's kicked to the curb. Um, and all of this came as a result of his integrity. He could not deny his experience. When the Pharisees said to him, we know this man is a sinner, I love his response. He goes, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But I know one thing. I was blind, and now I see. There's so much power in that. You can tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. I know what I experienced. You cannot deny that my story is, is true to me and that my experience is real to me. So say whatever you want about it. One thing I know I was blind yesterday. This afternoon, I see. 
Jesus went looking for him and, um, and finds him. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he, he wins his faith. You know what's interesting is when, he, when this blind man is being interrogated, they ask him, he, he, uh, they, they say something to him, like, like, who is this person? Tell us about this person. And he says, oh, I've told you already. He says, why are you asking again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And they rage over that. We are disciples of Moses. You're his disciple, not us. But he asks, do you want to be his disciples too? Is he suggesting that he has already become a disciple? I'm, I'm already with him. Are you asking me because you want to follow him also? So he, he reconnects with Jesus, okay, and now he has the full enlightenment. And then Jesus explains to whoever's there, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Judgment, uh, the Greek word, the root of the Greek word, means to make a, a distinction. So in judgment, you are making a distinction between good and bad. Um, Jesus has already provoked judgment. It's already out there. Because we're told earlier in the chapter that there was a division among the people over Jesus. Those who are leaning towards him and those who are against. So there's already judgment. Those who are leaning towards him, you know, they're with the sheep and the others are with the goats. You know, it's uh, like Jesus says, on the last day, um, the judgment of God will be like a fish net thrown into the ocean. And then after it's, it's brought in, the fish are separated, the good are thrown back into water. Or probably, the, the, that's what I would do. Oops. Um, the bad are thrown back into the water, the good are, you know, taken in. And so um, there's this distinction being made, this division that's occurring. And, and Jesus says, well, this is why I'm here. He says in Luke's gospel, don't think I've come to bring peace. I have come not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And if you don't know how Jesus can divide families, and not, not violently or, or through violence, I mean, it can become violent against the believer. Um, there's a few people here you could ask today about how Jesus breaks, breaks up families. Um, he broke up his own family to some degree. But the Pharisees asked him, well, are we blind also? Are you saying that we're blind? And he said, no. It's because you say we see that your sin remains. If you were blind, there'd be forgiveness. Um, you, would, you would not... Okay, Someone bumps into me in the store and I turn around, you know, tiffed and um, ready to say, what's with you? And they've got dark glasses and a cane. Okay. They haven't committed a crime against me. They haven't done this intentionally. They didn't see me. There's forgiveness. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, if you didn't see you'd be forgiven. But it's because you say, we see. And all the way through, we see. How do they say, we see? Well, in verse 24, they say, we know this man is a sinner. That's what they see. In verse 28, we know that God has spoken to Moses. As for this man, we don't know where he comes from. We know. He says, it's because of that that you stick to what you think you know that your sin remains. That's why, you know, you're not making right decisions. You think that you see. And that's the danger of trusting your own religious dogma, you know, the, so much that nothing can modify it. Nothing can, can give you a different perspective on it. You think you know while rejecting the evidence that says otherwise. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, 
your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. The eye refers to sight, and the body refers to the whole person. But that Jesus says body is really important. The whole person is embodied. Um, Your spirit, apart from your body, isn't a whole person. The spirit and the body are one. And, And we can't understand that because we don't know that other dimension so well. But then there's the light of the scripture on us, A spirit appears. It's there. This is the the true me. Your spirit is your true self. When we say that someone's vision is healthy, what we're talking about is clarity. But Jesus was referring not to clarity, but to where attention is focused. The eye is the lamp of the body. And so I ask, to what do I give most of my attention? What is on my mind most of the time? Is it my many anxieties? Um, Some of them are, are real. You know, a bomb could fall on us tomorrow from North Korea. And some of them are, you know, pure fantasy, but... Is that where my mind is all the time? What am I letting into my body, into my heart, into my mind, into my spirit? Because whatever I'm focusing on, whatever I'm concentrating on, this is what comes into me, and it's supposed to be light. I feel like such a hypocrite right now. Uh, Thursday and Friday were two of the darkest days for me that I've had in a long, long time. And it wasn't this happened or that horrible thing happened. It, and it wasn't even an accumulation of things. It was just, they're just bad days. And I could not pull my mind out of the, the spiral into darkness. Um, so I just wrote it out. Uh, but now, uh, since yesterday, I've been looking to whatever the light is revealing. And that's been my focus. And I can say I have more, much more light in me today than Thursday or Friday. See how this works? John wants us to see the light. He wants us to have what he had. When he read... Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he saw a lot of things that weren't on the surface. And it wasn't reading between the lines or putting things in there. He was seeing what was there, just hadn't been brought out. And he wants us to be able to read all of Scripture that way. Um, He wants us to read others that way. Jesus says, you judge by appearance. Judge righteous judgment. Well, what's the difference? Well, appearance doesn't, the appearance in natural light isn't going to tell you what you need to know. In spiritual light, you'll have better sight of another person and of yourself. Um, it's very possible that if you were to see yourself in the light of Jesus, you'd have a much more positive attitude about yourself. You wouldn't be so hard on yourself because you would see how God knows all of your brokenness and how he loves you in it. And he's loving you out of it, into, into wellness. The Pharisees remind us that blindness can be willful. But, but the blind man reminds us that sight can be improved. Well, only recently I, I've learned about vision exercises, really simple uh, exercises that you can do at home. Uh, don't do it here because I think you're making faces at me. But... Um, Vision exercises to improve our sight. Well, let's do that. 
Let's do that. There are exercises that we can do where we exercise that part of our brain that is more aware of God. And the more we exercise and develop that, the more we will have an awareness of God, more often and steadier. And that's why we sit in silence to exercise that part of our brain. It says, come, Lord Jesus. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. We're just saying, here I am. You called, here I am. Our brains can be trained to see the light of the world. Um, but it comes through the touch of Jesus. It, it comes through the, the love of Jesus. Abbot John Chapman, a, a wonderful old soul in the early 20th century, was writing to a young man and said, God is taking you in hand and teaching you. Be courageous. Let him work. You can help by not interfering. That is, by not worrying or complaining. But try trying to be peaceful and confident and content. Would you stand with me, please? Thanks for being here. And on time, I'm, I'm thinking there's going to be four or five more people coming <laughs> in just a couple minutes. And uh, I'm not doing a second service. Uh, they'll have to watch it on Facebook. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.